1: Today is Wednesday, September 18th, 2019. On this day in 1975, Patricia Hearst was arrested by the FBI after close to two years on the run. Patricia was a newspaper heiress, a criminal, and a self-proclaimed urban guerrilla. But she's most famous for being the controversial poster child for Stockholm Syndrome. Welcome to Today in True Crime, a ParCast original. Every day, we flip back the calendar to this date years ago and recount one event from true crime history. Due to the graphic nature of today's crimes, listener discretion is advised. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. I'm Vanessa Richardson, and today I'm joined by our guest host, Greg Polson. Greg and I co-host two other ParCast originals, Serial Killers and Cults. He's here to discuss some of the historical aspects of Patricia Hearst's arrest, while I'll cover the narrative.
0: Hello, everyone. I'm thrilled to dive into the story of Patricia Hearst. Now, let's go back to September 18th, 1975, in the early afternoon.
1: Patricia Hearst and Wendy Yoshimura sat at their San Francisco kitchen table, heads bent over a sheet of paper, reading Wendy's looping script. It was a letter to Wendy's ex-boyfriend, Willie Brandt, who had introduced her to the radical leftist scene in Oakland, California. He was in jail now, like so many of Patricia and Wendy's radical friends, lovers, and colleagues. They were all in jail or dead, it seemed. But Wendy wasn't the young college girl Willie had met back in the 60s, with stars in her eyes for a handsome boy with things to teach her. Her letter reflected that. Now she had a bone to pick with the men who'd radicalized her. Men who spoke of equality, but upheld the patriarchy at every turn. Patricia nodded emphatically and earnestly as Wendy talked about the letter. Patricia loved these long days spent together in the apartment, talking about feminism and men and the future of America. They were working on a feminist manifesto. But Patricia, for all her radical gusto, was also glad they were taking it slow, thinking carefully about every word they put to paper. It was time to step back from the war and her radical colleagues who still insisted on a chauvinistic version of political action. The world would never really change with those guys in charge. Even so, the days of building and exploding bombs weren't that far behind her. And the guns? Well, there were two carbines in the closet and a shotgun in the bedroom. Patricia knew the FBI was looking for her. And even on the quietest day at the kitchen table, reading and writing and wondering what they would have for dinner, There was a nagging tension tugging at the back of her neck, a constant worry that something was right behind her. Wendy, interrupting Patricia's thoughts, walked to the sink for a glass of water. Patricia stood up too, stretching, when they were here. Freeze, FBI. Patricia did freeze for a moment, her mind racing. They'd found her, but her gun? She'd go down fighting, like her comrades had taught her, rather than rot in jail. She started to run towards the bedroom. But agents had already arrived in the kitchen and they had a gun pointed at Wendy's head. Freeze, the FBI repeated. This time, they added, I'll blow her head off. Patricia stopped abruptly. She turned back to look at Wendy. The two women made eye contact. Patricia's heart felt like it would beat right out of her chest. She needed to think like Wendy, not like those chauvinists who taught her to fight at all costs. She needed to be smart, not proud. So many of the people she'd loved this past year were already dead at the hands of these pigs. But she and Wendy would live she surrendered. The two women were escorted out of the apartment without a fight, a physical one anyway, but Patricia wasn't done fighting for change and justice. As she stepped out of the FBI's car at the downtown federal building, surrounded by reporters and photographers, she held up her right fist as high as she could in handcuffs. She was giving the revolutionary salute. And that evening, when she arrived at the San Mateo County Jail, shortly before 8 p.m., she told the clerk booking her into the facility that her profession was urban guerrilla. Her struggle was far from over. Coming up. Patricia Hearst's trial initiates a nationwide conversation about psychological manipulation and permanently impacts the way law enforcement thinks about hostages. Now back to the story. On September 18, 1975, 21-year-old Patricia Hearst was arrested by the FBI in San Francisco, California, Her arrest marked the end of a year-long search. What had started as a kidnapping recovery ended as an investigation into her violent crimes. Greg will take us through the rest of this story.
0: Thanks, Vanessa. On February 4th, 1974, Patricia was abducted by the Symbionese Liberation Army, or the SLA, A radical group of leftists that believed violence was the only way to end racial and economic injustice in America, the SLA committed murder and bank robbery, as well as kidnappings. Within a few months of her capture, Patricia was robbing banks with the rest of them, seemingly a convert to the SLA's revolutionary goals and their violent approach to achieving them. But on May 17, 1974, most of the SLA members including their leader, Donald DeFreeze, died in a violent shootout with the FBI. Instead of returning to her family, Patricia went on the run with the few remaining members of the SLA. She spent the next year and a half as a fugitive. Over the course of those long months, her politics started to change, largely as a result of conversations with feminist Wendy Yoshimura and other female radicals. These changes pulled her away from the remaining members of the SLA, whom she saw as chauvinistic. But she never abandoned the radicalism she adopted amongst her captors back in 1974. Immediately after her arrest, on September 18, 1975, Patricia stuck to her revolutionary guns, the metaphorical ones anyway. The crimes she committed, she committed in the name of justice and in the pursuit of a better America for all. But as time went on, a new narrative emerged from Patricia and the excellent lawyers her wealthy family hired for her. She was a victim when she was kidnapped and she never stopped being a victim. All of her crimes were the result of psychological manipulation and something called Stockholm Syndrome. Stockholm Syndrome is now a well-known psychological concept, but it was a new idea at the time of Patricia Hearst's arrest in 1975. The syndrome is defined as feelings of trust or affection felt in certain cases of kidnapping or hostage-taking by a victim toward a captor. Patricia's lawyers argued that their client was psychologically manipulated and abused into identifying with her kidnappers. Her decision to join the SLA and commit crimes with them was the product of Stockholm Syndrome. As a result, they argued, she was not culpable for her actions. The argument fascinated America, but the public was divided as to its validity. Some people bought it and felt sympathy for everything Patricia had been through. Others saw her as a wayward rich girl benefiting from the strange inventions of crafty lawyers. They called Stockholm Syndrome a fanciful excuse for real criminal activity. The jury took the latter line of reasoning. Patricia was sentenced to seven years in prison for bank robbery. Although President Jimmy Carter commuted her sentence after 21 months, thanks to an appeal from her wealthy, powerful parents. But the failure of Patricia Hearst's defense in court is belied by just how popular it has been outside of the courtroom and its long-term, far-reaching influence. The Hearst story is now generally considered a classic example of Stockholm Syndrome, which has become much more widely accepted as a legitimate psychological phenomenon since the 70s. Today, law enforcement agencies actually encourage it in hostage situations, even though it can make rescue more difficult. Hostages with Stockholm Syndrome often stop wanting to be rescued. They start to fear law enforcement even more than their captors. But if they come to admire or even join their captors, at least their odds of survival increase. And in today's view, a hostage turned criminal is better than a murdered hostage. While Patricia didn't benefit from today's more sympathetic attitudes towards Stockholm Syndrome during her trial, It's in large part thanks to her and her widely publicized story that Stockholm Syndrome has become a household term. Patricia Hearst changed the landscape of clinical psychology and revolutionized the way American law enforcement and courts approach hostage cases. She may not have changed the world in exactly the way she claimed she would, as a part of the SLA, but she changed it nonetheless.
1: I'm Vanessa Richardson. Thanks again, Greg, for joining me today.
0: Thanks for having me. You can find our podcasts, Cults and Serial Killers, on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts.
1: For more information on the life and crimes of Patricia Hearst, check out the episodes of Female Criminals and Hostage that cover her experience, as well as the Cults episodes on the Symbionese Liberation Army and Donald DeFreeze. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at Parcast Network. We'll be back with a brand new episode tomorrow in True Crime. Today in True Crime was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Russell Nash, Production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Paul Mahler, Maggie Admire, and Freddie Beckley. This episode of Today in True Crime was written by Nora Battelle. I'm Vanessa Richardson.